You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. It's good to be together. We have two more weeks in 1 Corinthians. We'll be in the middle part of 15 this Sunday today. And uh, then we have, or end of 15 and 16 next week. And then on the 14th, we go to three services. I know you've heard about it many times. We're going to tell you one more time uh, that it's going to be at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. Uh, Tallahassee, I like to say that business picks up. Uh, in town, in terms of kind of Tossie comes back to life as school starts. Uh, students are coming back from different places around the state a little bit later in August, and we just want to be prepared for that. Our, our children's ministry is, is really booming, and we want to create space and also be prepared uh, for when folks kind of get back in the regular swing of life away from their summer schedules. So what, an, what a privilege and what an opportunity it is to go to three services. So thanks for being on board with that. Everyone has to change because of it. Every single person has to choose a different service time because uh, there is no more 9 or 11 starting on the 14th. So 1 Corinthians 15, before I pray, here's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the future resurrection of all Christians. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we celebrate at Easter, guarantees the future resurrection of all Christians, which we will see means we should celebrate Easter all year long. That's not cliche. It's the actual hope of the Bible and the hope we have in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. What an amazing act of grace that we have the words of our creator to tell us who you are, to tell us what we've done and how that's fallen short of your glory and to give us your grand plan of redemption to bring a people back to yourself. We're thankful for the church you continue to build all around the world throughout generations and we anticipate the return of Christ one day to make all things new. I pray for all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today. May everyone preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and point people to the hope we have in the fact that the tomb really is empty. I ask you to the enemy out of this place, out of our city. Let the name of Jesus be made known in this place. We ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 15 will be starting in verse 20, a little bit where Zach left off last week. But once again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the future resurrection of all Christians. His resurrection is what gives us hope. And Paul's even going to make the case that if the resurrection is not true, if Easter Sunday is totally fabricated, totally made up, then we're wasting our time in everything else we are doing. Verse 20, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. And earlier in 1 Corinthians, he's making the case. He's saying, I'm a witness. I, Paul, am a witness to this. Jesus appeared also to over 500 people at one time. He says, and guess what? A lot of them are still alive. Go ask them. Their lives have been radically changed because of this truth. Jesus is alive. That's the big theme of 1 Corinthians, convincing them and reminding him of this. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the one who has gone first. He has resurrected first. He has gone before us in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. For since death came through a man, that being Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Death coming through a man, Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the Garden of Eden, they didn't just sin against God, massive, they also sinned on our behalf. We are born with what is called original sin. We have original sin from the, from the get-go. And then you might say, well, that's not very fair. Well, then we prove it's true by actually sinning ourselves. So Adam was our representative. And the wages of sin is death. So death came through Adam. Spiritually, we receive that death and physically, as that one day all will die as a result. But the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. 
Jesus, who's fully God, fully man, called the second Adam in the scriptures. What Adam failed to do, Jesus delivered and did perfectly, living a perfect life, doing always the will of the Father, dying a death that we deserved in our place, and rising from the grave, conquering death unlike Adam was able to. For just as in Adam all die, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so also in Christ all will be made alive. First Adam, second Adam. Death and alive. Life, death. Again, what Adam failed to do, Jesus does perfectly. And in the same way we died with Adam, we'll be made alive with Jesus. Verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ, and again, there's a sequence here. Christ, the first fruits, he's the one who went first. Afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What he's telling us is Jesus has gone ahead of us. He's ascended into heaven. And all the things he's promising us here, this resurrection life, is going to come with Jesus when he returns. So it's really important as believers that you really affirm the, the second coming of Jesus. That he's actually going to come again for his church and make all things new. That is where the promises of the resurrection go into full play and full understanding. Then comes the end. He's going to see the order here. Remember he says, Christ, then afterwards his coming. Then comes the end. The end of things as we know it in this broken, corrupt, dead world. When he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, there's a lot here, but the best way to summarize it really is this is the opportunity for mission to be accomplished. Jesus accomplished the mission that he was sent to do. And now, and there's a Trinitarian story here that now he hands the keys and says, we've done it. And he will reign forever and ever. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. How different is this than the often vision we have of Jesus or the explanation we have of Jesus? People see Jesus as just kind of some like, just sort of peace frog, like a divine peace frog. You know, just goes around, just kind of throwing out, you know, love potion to everybody. Or maybe he's just viewed as a motivational teacher uh, maybe he's viewed as some kind of political revolutionary that helped the poor. Here we're told he is the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the firstborn over all creation, that everything now will be subject underneath him once and for all, forever. He is the one who rules, and he is the one who reigns. For he must, put, he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And what's the last enemy? The last enemy to be abolished is death. Now, the spiritual penalty for death has already been dealt with. Again, Christ died so we would not have to spiritually. The resurrection guarantees that. But physical death is the last enemy. Physical death still exists. Why? Look around. The mortality rate is 100%. Every single person in this room is going to die and probably have a funeral one day. One but he's telling us that that will even be abolished. The last enemy, the wages of sin is death. Because of Adam's sin, that death rules and death reigns and death is present. It's always around us. We're always aware of it. And we can try our best to try to make it go away a little longer. And do a little extra yoga, juice a little bit more, whatever it could be. Prolong it as long as we possibly can. But it's coming for every single person. That's not to try to scare anyone. That's just reality. We all know that. The death is coming one day. But he's telling us there will be a day where it doesn't come anymore. Where it doesn't happen anymore. 
and Christ's resurrection will guarantee that as he makes all things new and the last awaiting enemy to be conquered once and for all is death. Isn't that amazing? Like, isn't that amazing? That's why Easter is such a big deal. That's why we can't just talk about the resurrection one day a year. Because Paul's saying this is what forms our understanding of everything. You can have hope. You can have a certain hope. You're not following a fairy tale. You're not into some superstition. You're following one that everything is subject to him and the one that one day will even defeat death. He even has the power over death because death could not hold him. It's incredible. But we get invited to by God's grace to be part of his redemptive story as, as his people. Isaiah talked about this. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, this is hundreds of years before a prophecy, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. That God has declared it. The disgrace of sin will be no more. The tears we cry in our brokenness, the awareness of sin all around us will be wiped away forever because Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. We see in verse 27, for God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious he who puts everything under him is the exception. It's a Trinitarian again story here that Christ again is subject. When everything is subject to Christ and the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. That's what we're talking about when earlier in the text when it says he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. A mission accomplished, and he will reign at the right hand of God forever as God himself. One God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Psalm 110 prophesied to this. This is a declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand, my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what's happening in Corinth is people are doubting. They're really mingling with the world, and as a result, they're being led astray by the world. They're believing things like there's more to be gained by disobeying God, and there is to be gained by obeying him. I gotta go around God for all the things I'm looking for rather than actually write to him. Oh, their worldly ideologies sound kind of good. I wanna sprinkle some of that into my Christian faith. And we're not even that far removed generationally from the resurrection. We're talking decades, not centuries, removed from the actual, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what are they doing? What we see happens often in our culture today. They're starting to abandon the truth. They're starting maybe to water it down, to maybe take away things they're a little embarrassed by because culture mocks it. And we see earlier through this book of the Bible, they're also joining in with a lot of the lifestyles that are taking place. Uh, in chapter six, we see temple prostitution they're engaging in. Uh, we see a lot of things happening. We see divisiveness. We see people trying to promote their own kingdom rather than the, the, the kingdom of God. There's a lot happening here so Paul's closing out his letter to them, reminding them of the faith to which they stand, that it's based on the resurrection of Jesus, and because Jesus is alive, that the last enemy of death will be abolished, that his resurrection guarantees ours. We need to make sure that we have put ourselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's not some kind of halfway game going on here. And he gets very specific. Remember, when you read the scriptures, it's important to know that they're written to actual specific churches at specific times, specific cities. So some things that may seem a little confusing to us, they would have known what Paul was talking about. Not because they happen to be more intelligent than we are, but because it was actually taking place in their church. 
So he gives an example to help them see just how ridiculous they're being and starting to compromise on the truth of the resurrection and believe maybe it was allegorical, maybe it didn't really happen. And he says this, otherwise, he goes, look about your inconsistencies here. Verse 29, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? That doesn't give us a lot here, but they would have understood, because apparently this was happening at their church, people were participating in some sort of baptism of the dead ceremony. Again, part of believing the authority of the Bible is you don't read more into it than it's there. We want to make sure that we actually understand hermeneutically what it's there for. Uh, so what's happening here is that these people apparently were participating in this kind of customary practice of baptizing the dead. We don't know if they dug them out, sorry, and baptized them, or if they did some kind of someone got baptized and stood in for them, or they said some kind of hocus pocus. We're not really sure what's happening here. And Paul doesn't seem concerned with all of that. What he wants them instead to realize is, why do you care about this? There's no resurrection. Like, what's the point? Why are you worried about a dead person getting baptized if you don't believe that it really matters? Because spiritually, nothing's going to happen. There's going to be a corpse forever and just, just be dead. Like, like why, why does it matter to you? He's trying to make them think. And the same questions can be asked of us. Why do we get dressed up on Easter Sunday if it doesn't really matter outside of a family holiday? Why? Why do we sing glory to the newborn king at Christmas time if we don't subject ourselves under the authority of the newborn king? He's going, why, why do you care about these things if there is no resurrection? How often do we as Christians live, maybe intellectually sort of believing the resurrection, but living like it doesn't even exist? He goes on, he goes, he's going to give his personal example. Why are we in danger every hour? Like here in Corinth in the first century, like we're facing persecution for our faith. Why would we just give in? Why endure this? Like what's, think about it, he goes, what are we thinking here? Why do we allow ourselves to be persecuted for the name of one, the one that we maybe don't, aren't sure about rising from the grave? Paul says, hey, here's my personal example. I'm just on ivory tower here. I face death every day. As surely as I boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like, I'm telling people about the church, what God is doing in your lives. But I face death for it. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, Ephesus as a mere man, some commentators think that was actually wild beasts. It could have been like lions and, you know, in the kind of Colosseum area type expression. Others believe that it's a metaphor for uh, people who are persecuting these kind of wild beast kind of ideas uh, in Ephesus, but the whole point is, I'm facing this as a mere man. What good did that do for me? He goes, it's foolishness, really. It makes no sense. And then he gets real practical. The dead are not raised. As involved, this is a fairy tale. If it doesn't really matter, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. As in, who cares? This is you do you before it was cool. This is you only live once, YOLO, which was like a thing like five years ago, before that was cool. If there is no resurrection, just go do, nothing else matters. If there is no resurrection, my bedroom, my business. If there is no resurrection, you choose your gender. If there is no resurrection, ignore the poor. 
If there is no resurrection, go to whatever church you want to. It doesn't matter if they believe, as long as they're nice people. If there is no resurrection, then do whatever you want and think whatever you want and believe whatever you want. They might say, well, make sure you don't hurt anybody. Well, says whom? Who decides that? Who's in charge of those things? If there's no foundation, we have no ethics, we have no morals, we have no purpose. Outside of a survival for the fittest, and you just do what makes you happy in the moment. Paul acknowledges this. He's owning it. Like He's extremely self-aware. If there's no resurrection, I'm wasting my time, I'm wasting my life, and, and I don't even want to tell you, you're wasting yours. Go and go do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. Jump on the latest, polit- the latest political controversy and act like it's the end of the world. Make, your, make a secondary thing your identity. Wh- whatever it is, do it. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals, which gives us an idea of what was happening. They were being led astray by others. They had other people speaking into their mind, popping into their Instagram direct messages, posting TikTok theology, which is like the worst thing you've ever seen. Pray for the youth of this world. Like, there are these things that are happening now. They're happening to them. Oh, it's not really true. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it's just more of a metaphor. You do what works best for you. Just be this, just be that. They're buying into it. He goes, don't be deceived. Bad company is going to corrupt everything we believe. He says, I love this. Come to your senses. This is just him being so plain. Come to your senses and stop sinning. If only it was that easy. I mean, come to your senses and stop sinning. Stop living for the world when Jesus is alive. Stop living as if there is no resurrection of the dead when there is. Jesus has died for you, a death that you deserved. He is the second Adam. What Adam failed to do, he has done for you. And you can have confidence that you have life now. Because the grave, the tomb is empty. He says, for some people are ignorant ignorant about God. And I say this to your shame. Now, the two things he could be referring to here maybe are one, that they aren't being very evangelistic. People don't know the good news, which that's a tragedy in itself. We believe the gospel is only good news if it gets there on time. We think mature Christians follow Jesus into the world and share the good news of Christ. So we send missionaries around the world and send missionaries to work every day in Tallahassee when you leave your driveway. Because we believe that they need to hear. Or the other thing could be their lifestyle. People are ignorant of the things of God because they're watching the way these professing Christians are living. So they never stop calling themselves Christians here. So they're claiming to be Christians, yet they're engaging in the lifestyle of a, of a basic Corinthian unbeliever. And as a result, people are ignorant of God, he's saying here. See, in cultural Christianity, which cultural Christianity is oftentimes people who would claim to be Christians if you ask them. And by that, they just mean they're not atheists and they're not Jewish. Or they're not Muslim. They're just kind of like, yeah, I'm Christian. They're kind of like a generic theist, kind of big guy upstairs. And, and sort of practice what you think are maybe some Christian values or morals that kind of fit into your family and don't kind of mess or disturb too much has little to do with Jesus and more of a kind of like a sort of southern, like I like church but don't go, like I believe these things but don't really care. It's just kind of this really kind of odd thing called cultural Christianity and it's really the the devotion of someone who doesn't really actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, listen to country music songs about heaven. Talk about heaven a lot, but no real interest in it. It's more sentimental you know, than it is anything else. I love country music, but it's more sentimental than it is everything else. 
kind of that young, wild, and free idea. You know, we're just having fun. We don't care who sees. You know, that's how it's supposed to be. You know, just that, that kind of idea. And he's trying to steer them away from that, not to remove them from the world, but have them live for Christ in the world. As people going into the world for Christ in the confidence and assurance that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive. What's Paul trying to say? This matters. Like this actually matters. Christianity is a lousy hobby. It's a lousy hobby. But it's worth our very lives because Christ's resurrection guarantees ours. And even more than that, because Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the one he claimed to be. What a mission we have in Tallahassee to get the word out that Jesus Christ is not randomly your buddy or your inspiration, that he's Lord, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Savior of the world. Let's get down to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, that's our natural selves, but raised in incorruption. That's what the scriptures talk about when we're about us being washed, about us being cleansed, made new. Sown in dishonor, Romans 1 talks about our shame, but raised in glory. What a swing. Sown in weakness, our corruptible selves, raised in power. Sown a natural body, which dies, raised a spiritual body. He says, be certain, if there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And that's not some kind of weird philosophy or weird new age. There's our old selves, and then there's our future selves. Our old selves are transformed spiritually but our bodies one day will be made new and be spiritual. So, so it is written. That means he's quoting from the scriptures, he's referencing the scriptures to them, it's where all truth comes from. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The scriptures are clear, Jesus believed this when you read the gospels, Paul believed this, that Adam and Eve actually were real people. Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Adam's contribution was simply failing to do what he was set up to do, be in a relationship with God, worshiping God, believing God only. So that, as a living being, what he failed to do, the last Adam, Jesus, actually brought life. However, the spiritual is not first with the natural, then the spiritual. They're all confused. They're going, wait, we have to feel, we have to feel our glorified bodies now. He's like, no, no, no. Order matters. Natural the spiritual is to come. So we as Christians do look forward. We do anticipate a world to come. That's really important for us as believers that we realize that we are called to have a certain hope. When people talk about being heavenly minded, they're not saying that you should remove yourselves from the world until you get to heaven. It's that that is our mindset. We understand this is the world that is coming to us. So we have confidence in following Christ knowing that as we sang in the song earlier, it's worth it. Like we're not wasting our time because Jesus rose from the grave. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. He was born of a virgin. He came here to accomplish a mission, which is to redeem a people to himself and also to one day to make all things new. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Dead. Like you said earlier, corrupt, weak, natural. But like the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, so are those who are of heaven. Here's what it says about Christians. I, think I told the nine o'clock service this. Verse 49, let's throw that up there. Thank you. Uh, and that if there was like a Mount Rushmore 
of Bible verses that have the most like punch of like wow, I think it's this. And you might read it and go, okay, but hold on here. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, where Adam sinned in our place, we are of Adam in our natural state, we also, it's incredible, it's like the, it's like the ultimate swing here, will bear the image of the man of heaven. What's it talking about here? We will bear the image of the glorified and risen Christ. Like we will be as he is. Romans 8 came to mind as I was thinking through this. And there's a lot in Romans 8, but two verses particularly, they all fit together, but we see the realization in verse 49 of what Paul was talking about in Romans 8, verse 30. Theologians call it the golden chain of salvation kind of the process. It says, those he predestined. Scriptures are very clear that God has predestined before the beginning of time a people for himself. Those he predestined. We see that, you know, there's mystery around, but what we do know is that that is what God has done. He also called. God calls you to salvation. He brings you to himself. It looks different for different people on how that process kind of developed for you in your life but that we know this, that those that God predestined, he's going to call. He's gonna draw to himself. That's why the only thing that we can take credit for in our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. God draws us. Start to finish, he does the work. And then he says that those he also called, he also justified. So in God's calling of us, justification is a legal term, right? He's, he actually declares us not guilty because Jesus was guilty in our place. So we actually are covered in the righteousness of Jesus when we come to faith. When God calls us to himself, we, he justifies us. So right now, if you stood before the Lord, you would not stand before God as some dirty, rotten sinner. You would stand before him as someone, if you're a believer, who has been covered in the goodness of Jesus. That's why now we have no shame. Jesus has dealt with that. So spiritually, you're right with God in your relationship with him in terms of life and death and forgiveness. It's not just we need to be forgiven, we also need to be righteous. Because God can't have unrighteousness in his presence, so we can't be righteous on our own. So we depend on what's called finding a foreign righteousness. Well, none of you can be righteousness for me, and I can't be righteousness for you, because all of you have your own unrighteousness, as do I. So we need one who is perfectly righteous, who has never sinned, and his name is Jesus. Born of heaven, came here born of a virgin, lived a life we couldn't live, died a death that we deserved, rose from the grave. And then the last thing he says is, and those he justified in this golden chain, he also glorified. Not glorified in terms of worship, but in conquering the final enemy, death, has given them new bodies, spiritual bodies, in their glorification. So what Paul's talking about in verse 49 when he says, and just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, he will also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the realization of our glorification in the golden chain of salvation. Whew. As my grandpa used to say, how about them sweet potatoes? I mean, that, that's the good stuff. Like, this is the Christian journey and the Christian life that God has set out in his glory before time to redeem a people who are far from him. These are the lengths that God has gone to save you to purchase your soul. That's why these things matter. So what does he say in verse 31 of Romans chapter eight? What's he say? 
He gives the golden chain of salvation, all we've read about 1 Corinthians 15, about the resurrection, and what does he say? What are we to say about these things? What do you want me to say? How do I respond? If God is for us, who is against us? Why? Because the final enemy is death, and that'll be conquered, and everything rules under his feet. Whew. That's the good stuff, y'all. If God's for us, it's not some battle cry of like winning a football game or like if God's for us, who can be against us? It's not about passing a test or getting through that deadline at work. No, it's, it's saying if God's done all this for us, who's against us? And why does it matter? If there is no resurrection, it all matters. What they think, what they're saying. But there is a resurrection of the dead only thing that ultimately matters is what God says. And he has spoken. And he has told us that the tomb is empty and that his resurrection guarantees ours. Hope you're encouraged by that if you're a believer. And if you're not sure where you're at on the fence, figuring it out, not sure, this is available to you. Like faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Will you, will you believe in faith and repent of your sins and trust in Jesus? Will you submit your lives to the one who loved you first? We have a care room out in the lobby which has people back there that, are, that can pray with you, have a conversation with you. Don't leave here today. If you want to talk to somebody about what it actually means to get in on this by God's grace and actually follow Jesus, the one who has conquered death. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the truth of the scriptures. What an amazing text to know all that Jesus has done for us, even bigger than that, for his glory. And Lord, we ask that we'll be people who are so confident in the resurrection, so mindful of the empty tomb that we are unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we don't go with the ways of this world, but we go with the one who conquered the grave. We anticipate the return of Jesus to redeem and reclaim his church once and for all and make all things new. And Lord, in between our justification and our one day glorification, Lord, we ask that we will live lives that honor you, that point people to you, that make much of you, that we will love your church as you do, and that we'll be people in Tallahassee, let our light shine before others. Lord, we know that the in-between time of justification and glorification, that you're sanctifying us, you're shaping us. Lord, let us become more like Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing about the great news of the resurrection and what it does for us and the confidence it should give us in Jesus.